This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. This is AMI Audio Live, bringing community events closer to you. Hello and welcome to this AMI Audio Live event. My name is Joita Gupta, and as I said, you're listening to an AMI audio live event. Usually, you might catch me on The Pulse, heard Mondays through Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern on AMI audio. But we decided we would tweak the algorithm, as it were, and try something new today. We are instead today a, at a really special conference. And we're broadcasting it live, coming to you from downtown Toronto. We are at the A11YTO conference at the TELUS Digital Towers. Today is the second and final day of a two-day conference. The conference has brought together about 350 attendees. They're from coast to coast to coast in Canada and beyond. And these are all people who are interested in having a conversation and furthering a discussion about digital inclusion and to explore the the future of accessibility in the digital space. The event is hosted by A11YTO, which has been creating, supporting, and expanding the digital accessibility community in and around Toronto for over five years. During this two-day conference, A11YTO has been showcasing a variety of lectures, demos, and lightning talks by accessibility advocates, innovators, and designers. So we're here today to try and tap into some of the excitement and some of the action. And let me tell you, if you didn't already know this about me, I am a conference fiend. I love to organize them. I love to attend them. I love the great vibe and the energy. You've got all these people who are so passionate about the work that they do. I would be hard-pressed to find a single person, whether they're a presenter, whether they're an attendee, who would ever say that accessibility, be it web accessibility, digital accessibility, or physical accessibility, that accessibility is just a job to them. Everyone here is passionate. Everyone here is committed. Everyone here is really excited. Excited, and we are so pleased to be able to tap into some of that energy and bring it to you. We are able to do a lot of things today in the short time that we have, one and a half hours. I guarantee it's going to fly by. You'll blink and it's over. We'll have a chance to speak to a number of presenters, find out about their talks, and find out about some of the conversations that have taken place over the course of this conference. We've got demos, we've got uh, presenters, and we'll be catching up with a bunch of them today. And we'll also be able to plug into some of the goings-on on the main stage. It is through the miracle of technology, dare I say, that we'll be listening in on one of the lightning talks scheduled to take place later on this afternoon. You'll hear from Chansey Fleet, who is a Brooklyn-based um, advocate, and Chansey's done a lot of work within their library system, and it's talking about something that, if you've ever heard me on Live from Studio 5 in the past, you know I get really excited about making sure that people who are blind or partially sighted have access to visual materials like maps or graphs, but that'll be later on 
today, and we'll be catching the the the, the talk on the podium with Chansey Fleet. And over the next hour and a half, we'll be hearing from attendees and guests alike. So, without further ado, I'm actually going to get this party started in a manner of speaking. Our first our first guest today is Billy Graham. Is Billy Gregory one of the co-organizers of A11YTO? Now that is the conference that we're at today, and it's a A11Y. In addition to this conference, also organizes an accessibility camp in Toronto and a monthly meetup group. And now, while Billy is very active in the accessibility community, he is also the director of training at the Paciello Group. So, uh, Billy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for being here. It's a, it's great to be here. I, I'm not lying to you. I am genuinely a conference fiend. It's taking every ounce of self-restraint that I have not to bounce out of my chair and get plugged into the, the talks myself. How are you feeling? Are you excited? Are you just nervous? Are you relieved that nothing seems to have fallen apart? I, you know what? All of that. Um, I, I started the week thinking that by today I would not be able to form sentences, that I would, you know, I would be stumbling around like a zombie because this is actually, it's our second day of this conference, but we held another conference on Wednesday all around the built environment before that. So this is actually just part of a, a string of three conferences we're organizing, but I feel great. I'm, you know, the, the community has a way of, of bringing us back to full energy whenever we're together. So... I couldn't be happier. Yes, I can definitely hear that. And you can definitely hear just the enthusiasm from everybody in the space. You mentioned this is a week-long uh, event. I know in the past, this is not the first time you've had a, 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 the conference in Toronto, but I think this is the first time you've really expanded it out and we've managed to bring it in so that uh, you have to have a week-long event. So give us an idea of some of the other events that have taken place this week. Sure. So um, the, the entire week we sort of branded as uh, A11Y Week TO, or Accessibility Week Toronto. Um, It started really just as us doing the conference, and then we added Accessibility in Real Life, or A11Y IRL, which is our built environment conference, and then we realized that we needed another conference to sort of bookend things nicely, so we added our gaming conference, which is Saturday, and then we're like, wow, that's a week of events. Let's <laughs> let's reach out to some other people. So we found this group called Access to Success. They were running a, a boot a three day boot camp earlier this week, all around accessibility and startups. So how to hire people with disabilities, how to engage with the community, and and we thought that was a great initiative that sort of fit what we were doing. So we brought them under our umbrella. Then we realized, you know, that's great during the day, but we need events that. You know, maybe people who can't get out of work, maybe they can't come to conferences, but they still want to celebrate what we're doing here. They want to celebrate accessibility, disability, inclusion, everything we're all about. So we uh, introduced a few evening events. Uh, on Wednesday night, we had accessible karaoke. So we had a karaoke wow. event with, 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 with slightly <laughs> lower volume. We had ASL interpreters who were brave enough to take on song submissions and do them on the fly. Uh, the, the the person we had uh, was incredible. Uh, they they were catching up with everything. They were dancing along. They did it remotely because we, you know, full disclosure, we could not find a single ASL interpreter brave enough to do it live in the room. But maybe next year. But this person was incredible. They were so fun, and I th- I like like to think that the group, uh, that the group of attendees had a, had a fun time. DQ and Shopify helped us with that. So shout out to them. Thank you very much. Uh, last night we had our reception tomorrow night. We have or sorry tonight. Geez, already mm-hmm. um, t- tonight we have, uh, uh, what we're calling the tweet up. So it's, we're going to carry on the conversation. So we're going to select some topics that came out of all of the tweets from this week 
and we're going to do some lightning talks around them tonight at Slack HQ. Uh, my good friend and fellow co-organizer of A11YTO, George Zamfer, helped set that up and coordinate. So um, shout out to him and the fine folks at Slack for making that happen. It's going to be one heck of a closing sort of evening engagement for this week. I think it's all sounding really good and looking really good. But let's step back a little bit. Tell me a little more about A11YTO. How did that all come about? So that actually came about, um, and and I'm going to tell this story in full disclosure for those folks listening at home. The guy who actually started this is sitting at the other end of this table for me, a gentleman named George Zamfer. Uh, years ago, him and Jenison, uh, Jenison started a camp on Global Accessibility Awareness Day. And George said, this is great, but let's turn it into a monthly meetup. Jenison liked the idea. So we all went out for dinner at Jack Astor's afterwards. There was 12 of us sitting at a table, and that became the first meetup. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a couple of years, Jenison moved. Uh, he had a great job opportunity in the Bay Area. He moved away. George started a family. Um, he's got a couple of beautiful sons now. Uh, so he's moved along, uh, and I took over with my new partners, Oscar and Chris, and we realized that we have this great, we have, you know, you know, you live in Toronto, you, you, you work here, you know how great the accessibility community is in this city. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to find a way to grow it and celebrate it. So we knew that our camps were great. So we said, let's turn it into a conference. Right. Let's take it one step bigger. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, bless him. May he rest in peace. The first person that came up, shake my hand and say he wanted to throw his support behind it. 100% was Rob Pearson from AMI. Oh, wow. Um, Rob, obviously we lost Rob a few yes, years of course, ago. Yeah. We celebrate him every year at, at conference and our camps. Rob had a habit of leaving a penny wherever he went. He loved to travel and he would leave a penny. Uh, so sitting in our sound booth right now, um, to remind all of us working as we come in and out of the room on the booth, right on the, on the, on the road case right beside is a penny from 1976, the year of Rob's birth. Uh, we walk by that. We see it throughout the conference. When the conference is over, we built an accessible podium this year. It's the first time we've had a, a podium that low, rises and lowers to you know suit the needs of all of our various speakers. Uh, when the conference is over, we are going to affix the penny underneath the podium so Rob is always with us, and the penny will remain hidden at our conferences until the end of time. That's so wonderful to hear. And, you know, I want to ask you a couple of things there, but I'm going to talk about what you've, uh, you've learned in the years of organizing this particular conference. What goes into making an event or a conference of this scale accessible to as many people as possible? You know, uh, uh, quite frankly, a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we learn something new every year, uh, whether it's the placement of the cart for the captions uh, the podium was a big one. You know, we, we want to invite guests. We want them to feel comfortable on our stage. Uh, and you know, and we, we really have to walk the talk, right? If, we, if we're putting on an event, we need to make sure that the people speaking our event, one, are representative of the community we're speaking to, but they also can get on the stage and feel comfortable presenting. We, we, you know, we, we really want to make sure everyone feels welcome. Um, we learned a lot last year about, you know, the, the placement of chairs. Uh, Jenny Heisler, who, who did a lot to help us with our IRL conference, she ran that almost single-handedly. Uh, she taught us a lot about the built world, how to set up things, how to make sure clearance, you know, that things we would never have learned if it wasn't for her. So, I mean, really, it, takes, it does take a, a village of people, and, and we have a great team uh, that behind A11YTO, and we all bring something different to the table to, to help us learn as we go, and we get a little bit better every year. Exactly. And in sticking with that theme of learning as we go and expanding what we know, why is it that 
the conversation that that we need to have a conversation about web and digital accessibility. Why is that conversation salient and timely? You know, I, I think just like anything else, the web is always evolving, and 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 we've had a couple of great talks that mention that the web isn't a vertical; it it's a horizontal. And I, I, Tatiana Mack mentioned this yesterday. It crosses everything. Every industry you can think of now relies on tech in some way. So every single life that is touched by those industries, which is you know almost every industry, touches every life in the world on some scale. And we need to make sure that there's technology available for everybody. Right. Well, it sounds like this is going to shape up to be an incredible conference. I want to congratulate you for putting it all together and for making it so much fun and informative. We've, uh, I know you've had days action-packed and jammed with guests, and we'll be talking to a couple of them over the course of the program. But on behalf of everybody here, congratulations. This has thank, been great. Thank you so much, and thank you for having us, and enjoy the day. Thank you very much. That was a conference organizer, Billy Gregory, who gave us his um, thoughts on the makings of the A. A11YTO conference. And in talking to, to Billy, you really get a sense of the amount of work that goes into a conference like this. It's one thing to show up on the day off. It's quite another to do the work year after year and to, to realize the results in the 350 people who are here today, all of them excited, all of them engaged, all of them passionate about web accessibility. I could just talk about this, but I think it might be time to take a bit of a breather. When we come back, we're going to bring on the first of several great guests we've got lined up for you on the program. So don't go away. This is an AMI audio live production, and you're with me, Joita Gupta. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to a live broadcast coming to you straight out of the A11YTO conference taking place in beautiful downtown Toronto. You're with me, Joita Gupta. You can occasionally, you, you can catch me on the pulse, but I'm here today covering off a tremendously successful and inspiring conference that's getting into web and digital accessibility and the future of web accessibility. As someone with a disability myself, I want to echo some of what our previous guest, Greg, uh, um, our previous guest, Billy, talked about, which is the importance of web and digital accessibility in the lives of everybody. And so when we talk about accessibility, especially on the internet or on the web, we aren't just talking about people with disabilities. We are, in fact, talking about everybody because, like it or not, as we get older, some of those bits are going to stop working and eventually we would, we would want to continue to use the web in big ways or small over the course of our lives. One of the ways in which the web has really become integral to our lives, for many of us being passionate gamers, is to be involved with an online gaming community. It has really blown up. And I know so many people who love online games, feel that they're part of something much bigger than themselves, and there is such a community around it. So with that context, my guest right now is Cherry Thompson, who is a games accessibility specialist and developer from Vancouver, B.C. They did a talk this morning, which is called The Quest for Peace, as a disabled games accessibility specialist. 
Cherry, I am really excited to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great. So give us the lowdown on your talk this morning. Uh, I know, it, you know, you, you probably can't entirely do it justice in about <laughs> 10 minutes, but give us a synopsis. Um, yeah, distilling 35 minutes down to a few seconds. Let's see. Um, <laughs> So it was, it's a look at what it's like to work in an industry for accessibility when the industry itself isn't particularly accessible or really built for disabled people. Um, from working practices to how I got to, into the industry, how I found myself here, but then also looking at what we can do to tackle marginalization together and just make all tech industries more inclusive. And I ho hopefully apply to more than just gaming because I think we're all pretty similar. Absolutely. So how did you get so interested in the world of accessible gaming and, and design? So I experienced disabilities myself. I've always had disabilities. They have always impacted my gaming, but not until my late 20s was it severe enough for me to really reach out to people and find out what more I could do. And it was through discovering how to adapt to inaccessible games myself that I discovered that actually they don't need to be as inaccessible as they are. And that was how I discovered that community. I discovered the disability community and it kind of propelled me into thinking about games in a very different way to the way I'd grown up. It's true. Um, the first time I realized that you could have a video game that didn't actually fully rely on visuals, that the audio component of that game was just as important, if not more so, uh, that was such a revelation. I never really got into gaming myself, but I know there are choruses of people who are really passionate about gaming. So what are some of the ways in which we can open up that conversation? And where, do, where does gaming and disability or accessibility intersect? Yeah, so the thing with gaming is that it's very different to the web and other technology and that it's a much more complex problem to solve in terms of accessibility because in making a game a game, we are making it inaccessible. That is what a game is. So what we really need to do is make sure we're being deliberate in how we approach design and make sure that the barriers that we're throwing up are not they don't that they don't need that they sorry let me start that again <laughs> um that the barriers were thrown up are not accidental and that they're something that are not excluding people unnecessarily and also i think we need to look at what we think of challenge and the way we do that is we break down who we think of as normal because there is no normal and that is really the crux of it is looking at the ways people interact what they want out of their games what challenges for them and how we provide a similar experience for people regardless of where they fit on the spectrum of humanity. Mm. Do you think in designing the gaming experience it's worthwhile to include people of all abilities in that conversation? Because often when you have conversations with developers, not all developers, but many developers and about accessibility, the perception is it's something that you overlay after the fact. You design a product, whatever that may be, and then you try to tweak it so that it can be accessible to as many people as possible. So what's your approach? Yeah, so my approach is very different to that. I do agree that has been the approach in the past and I really hope, oh, well, I know that we're changing. Um, it's just a matter of time. And so I have seen the momentum change in the last five years. It's been kind of incredible to see that shift of understanding that we need to be tackling this as part of our core design approaches from the very beginning of any game. And I think many developers have seen that sometimes when we think we've created a solution, we've actually made more problems or we haven't solved it in the way that we thought we did. And that in itself is a learning experience to be put something out into the world and think, we've got this. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden your players tell you, no, you don't have this. And 
I do think that there are more and more developers that are listening on social media, um, at conventions, and many other places. And while we may not be covering, we don't have everyone on board yet. We have so many people on board. Just this week, we had the Games Accessibility Conference, and it sold out for the first time. And it was incredible to see so many people there from Europe. Um, and it's just really just this incredible momentum. And I, I do have a lot of hope for the future. But yeah, I, I approach it from the ground up and very much that accessibility needs to be part of our core approach to how we design games, which is in usability. Mm -hmm. And is there sort of a, a bit of a push and pull for someone who is both trying to work within the industry, you, you want a market for your games, you want to be able to talk to other developers, but at the same time, you want to be a bit of a rabble rouser and make some noise about accessibility. How do you balance those two things at the same time? Yeah, it's very, very hard. Um, I'm very exhausting, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest, um, which is actually at least partly what my talk is about. Um, but yeah, you have to be very visible. You have to be prepared to be visible. I wrote an article earlier this year for one of the biggest gaming news websites that got me a lot of attention that I was ready for, but isn't necessarily the nicest attention. Um, and you do have to face that a lot. Unfortunately, that is kind of what accessibility has been like for a long time, because we're tackling deep stigmas and marginalizations within society and they exist everywhere so gaming doesn't exist in a silo mm -hmm. it it almost amplifies those those stigmas in a way and so we have to break those down at the same time as addressing accessibility and that's the difficult part um yeah so i want to be really honest that is hard and it's not necessarily something we're ready to solve i don't think we're quite there but that's kind of the idea of the quest for peace. That's that's my idea is that at some point in the future, we won't have to fight anymore. We won't have to feel unsafe and we will be heard without a struggle. You know, I, I can't help but draw parallels b between the experience of gamers with disabilities and the experience of women gamers who faced marginalization and exclusion in very gendered ways when they try to break into the industry. But it's really great to hear that you're getting such a positive reception to some of your ideas around making gaming more accessible. Tell us about what it's meant to you to be part of the A11Y conference. You've been here, uh, I take it for the whole week or a couple of days. What have you been up to? Yeah, so I actually flew in on the day of accessibility IRL because I was at the Games Accessibility Conference in London and took a plane from one to the other. Um, I was so excited for this conference. I wrote this whole talk was a brand new talk. And the fun fact about this talk is that because I knew the conference wasn't being recorded, unlike most games conferences, and also it's not technically my industry, it's adjacent to my industry, I felt this incredible freedom to just be very honest and um, talk about my experience in depth. And it was just this intense freedom. And I also had this huge pressure of being the first speaker announced. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, I just admire everything that Billy and Oscar and the rest of the crew have achieved with this conference. And I've heard about it for a couple of years now. And it, it was just such an incredible honor to be on that stage, really. And, you know, one of the nice things about being part of a conference is it often brings you into contact with like-minded individuals that you might not have otherwise met. Have you had a chance to make some connections and network with some other developers who might help with your work and whose work you might be able to facilitate? Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. So the fun thing about conferences like this is that so many of us know us know each other on Twitter, which is, I don't know how, but Twitter became the accessibility place that accessibility people congregate. Um, and we've all spoken to each other here and there because we tweet 
these things sometimes angrily, sometimes frustrated, but often also celebrating our wins and our achievements and the things that we're able to accomplish. And so then to be able to meet those people in person has been really incredible. And then, of course, their friends, too, that obviously I didn't know on Twitter. And you just keep it's like a family tree that just spreads outwards. It's Absolutely. Nice. So what's uh, what's on the docket for you for the rest of the day? Are you going to check out some talks now that yours is done and dusted? Are you going to check out a few more talks and hang out with some people? I am, but I'm also just realizing I'm ready to crash, but I have another talk tomorrow. I'm <laughs> <laughs> so not done yet. <laughs> oh, look, I, I have just enough time to, to ask you about a cliche. So humor me, okay? Um, there's a perception out there that people with disabilities are natural problem solvers. And do you feel that there is some connection with this this idea that people with disabilities who encounter barriers in their daily lives might be particularly su uh, suitable as gamers and also as developers of games? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. So there's very little research done into how many disabled players there are in the world. Um, I have these hunches that there's way more than people think. And in fact, the statistics probably skew higher than they do for the average population um, outside of gaming. Because gaming brings so much to disabled people's lives, and also it's how we experience the world. In my regular gaming talk, I talk about how life is hard mode for us. It is like a hard mode game, and we're so good at difficult games and challenge because we face it every day, and we're not strangers to it, we're not afraid of it. Sometimes we want to just like have a break and not have to deal with that crap and just play a fun, easy game, which, you know what... <laughs> I'm here for that, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, and I really appreciated that although you're on the verge of crashing, you took a couple <laughs> of minutes to speak to us today. Thank you very much, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Your show is amazing. Thank you very much. That was Cherry Thompson, who delivered a talk this morning about accessible gaming. Lots to unpack on that one alone. But we're going to take a quick breather. I just want to ask you, have you ever heard about an accessible walkthrough or an accessible toolkit walkthrough. I don't even know entirely what that means, much less how to make it accessible, but not to worry, guys. Our next guests who've flown in all the way from Australia have us covered, so don't go away. Don't touch that dial, as they like to say. This is an AMI-audio live production, and we're coming to you from the A11YTO conference in downtown Toronto. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to an AMI-audio live broadcast. We're coming to you from downtown Toronto at the A11YTO conference. You're with me, Joetha Gupta, and we've got an awesome crew of staff at AMI Audio, both right here at the conference with me, as well as back at, in our studio in Toronto, who are helping to bring this broadcast to you. We're, so we're sitting in and tapping into some of the great energy at this conference, which has now been running for the better part of a week, and bringing in various components of a conversation about web and digital accessibility, as well as ensuring that people with, with disabilities have an, an experience online that is both accessible as well as as user-friendly. To help us expand on that conversation, my next two guests are, in fact, from Australia. Yes, that's right. They've flown in all the way from Australia this morning, apparently. Sarah Pulis and Andrew Arch delivered a talk called 
adding task-oriented walkthroughs to your toolkit. Both Sarah and Andrew work for a digital accessibility company called Intopia. Sarah is the director and co-founder, and Andrew is the principal consultant. Folks, both of you, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah and Andrew, come on, guys, be honest. Did you really fly in from Australia this morning? No. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you did, you, uh, you, you don't look jet-lagged at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not sure where that came from. And no, we've been okay. here for a little while, so oh, we're, we're pretty sharp. <laughs> wonderful. Well, so, so Sarah, tell me a little bit about your experience with the conference. What have you had a chance to take in so far? For us, you know, the, the key thing is just meeting people. Uh, in Australia, we are a fair ways away from everyone. And so being able to come and talk to people who are in the industry and learn from them and also find out that, you know, the difficulties that we're facing in accessibility are exactly the same over here. Uh, and it's nice to, to be able to share that experience as well. Andrew, what about you? Is it uh, your first time? Uh, first time at this conference, um, we were in, I was actually encouraged to come last year, but uh, the timing and uh, expenses weren't right. Uh, but uh, yes, building on something that uh, Cherry actually said um, was uh, meeting people that you follow on Twitter and uh, other electronic media uh, and uh, putting a, a real person to a name and a Twitter handle uh, is, is always good to do and, and just meeting and sharing ideas with people. Absolutely. Sarah, help to break down the jargon for those of us who aren't technically inclined. <laughs> What exactly is a task-oriented walkthrough? Okay. So task-oriented walkthrough is um, taking a persona, which is kind of a representation of a user, um, and almost stepping into the shoes of that user in order to review your interface to see, you know, is, are things easy to get to, you know, or is it user-friendly or is a button label clear um, for what it does? So we uh, talked about the title as One Tool in Your Toolkit because we're not saying this is a replacement for doing usability testing and having users involved, but more that this is something that you can do in your head as you're designing to think about what is that path that a user is going to take and, you know, to see maybe or identify barriers early on when you're still in that design phase. So, Andrew, would you say this is really a way for developers to become a little more creative when they're in the design stage, that they're not just thinking about an end user who may be like them, but they're actually expanding their thinking to include people uh, with all abilities, whether it's physical change differences or cognitive differences, that you're really trying to develop a product that is as all-encompassing as possible? That's right, and by having it as a persona, it means that you can so go and sit in the other chair there and say, okay, it's not me anymore, I'm going to try and represent this person with these needs and work through that process right back from you know, the, the sketches through to the, the, the um, high-fidelity mock-ups, and then you can you know, use it again when you've got the developers starting to put the code together and say, okay, have we interpreted this correctly? So yes, you can identify some issues, uh, potential problems even. It also gives you that ability to, to get rid of those, but also to say, hey, look, I'm not sure about this. You know, it could be this, it could be that. And then you can identify uh, a couple of areas that you really want uh, when you get some people to come in and do some usability work with you to identify, okay, we want to concentrate on this area because this is one we're not quite sure about, whereas this other area is You know, fairly clear. It's 
there's a problem there. We know how to solve it. Mm. Sarah, today must be the day for cliches because I'm going to bring up another cliche. Um, there's a perception out there, again, that accessibility is about ensuring you've checked off a bunch of boxes. But isn't it fair to say that accessibility goes beyond uh, simply compliance, or, but it, it in fact delves into the end user experience? How do those concepts overlap? Absolutely. Um, we actually work with a lot of the organizations back home in terms of, I guess, moving their, the way they think about accessibility from that compliance checkbox sort of approach to a much more what, we, what you call inclusive design process where you're involving diverse users, whether that be users with disabilities or other diverse backgrounds, in the process from the start. You know, so talking to users about what they need including that research and using that research in your designs, you know, checking in again, as we've mentioned, in that sort of testing stage to see what the experience is like for users. So we need to um, educate people to say, yes, we are, anyone is not a checklist. We don't simply fit into a number of boxes. <laughs> exactly. Well, I have uh, admittedly a bit of a checklist of my own that I wanted to get to today. <laughs> and, and one of the things I really wanted to hear from you, uh, Andrew, uh, particularly, is some of, uh, some of what's happening in Australia to try and promote web accessibility. Uh, because we don't often get guests from Australia, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask. So tell us about some of the exciting things happening in your neck of the woods. I think we're probably much more like Canada. Um, we have Disability Discrimination Act, but uh, unlike the US, we tend not to take people to court every five minutes because they might be doing the wrong thing by people. We go through a conciliation process where a, a complaint is lodged and then the um, Human Rights Commission try and mediate it. But what we're seeing in Australia now is... Um, you know, it's not the threats that are driving the interest in accessibility and it's you now probably in the last two or three years in particular we've seen a big uptake of uh, interest in accessibility um, from the corporate community, um, the big retailers, the big banks and so on and they're seeing it as a business benefit. Now, it's much more that side of it that is getting the traction in Australia, that it's, um, it, it's not the legal threat, um, it's not that we, we need to do the right thing, it's, um, you know, this is good for our business, mm. um, which is really, really delightful to see compared with, you know, 10, 15 years ago when people were saying, okay, we have to do it because, you know, the government has said, you know, this is the standard. Right. Sarah, that is such an interesting point, and I'd love to follow up with you because I get the impression you've been involved with this for quite a, a while as well. Uh, there is often a perception that either you need to comply with the law when it comes to making websites accessible, uh, but it's also a, a question of a civil rights issue or a human rights issue. How much traction have you noticed this idea of, of, of accessibility being good for business uh, get from both the corporate community but also from, uh, from clients? I mean, are people in Australia saying we're more likely to frequent a business which seems to be either physically accessible or their website is accessible? Is that something that's been taken up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, what we often see is is that um, users who have a great experience are sticky customers. You know, mm -hmm. they tend to stay with organisations who are providing them with a, a great customer experience. Um, and then I guess in the, the context of what we're talking about, that includes, you know, making sure things are accessible and it has a good experience. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely seeing that from organisations is, you know, that, that focus on customer experience. 
uh, it's also great to see that um, uh, organisations are also recognising that, you know, often, unfortunately, accessibility is looked at usually from a customer focus in the first instance, but we have more organisations that are looking at it uh, at accessibility from an employee perspective as well. Mm. So making sure that their systems are accessible, that they have, you know, um, adjustment processes in place for anything that um, employees need. And that's great because it removes barriers, you know, for people with disability working in organisations. It's true. You know, when I think back to my own experience as an employee, uh, when I started working uh, my job, I had um, a database that was online and there were drop down menus, which I couldn't read with a screen reader. And I just had to try and guess at the right value and and input it through memory. It was not an experience I want to relive. (laughs) Uh, But when we went back to redesign the database, uh, because I was an employee there, a lot of effort was put into making that database, the, the redesigned database, accessible from the ground up. So Sarah, if you know if there are employees with disabilities and patrons with disabilities and companies w- that cater to accessibility needs, uh, where does your your company um, come into that? Like, what is what is the role that you play in Topia? So as a digital accessibility and inclusive design consultancy, we really work in par- partnership with organisations to help them to make their products and services and experience more accessible. And that can take many forms because organisations are at different stages in their sort of accessibility journey and accessibility awareness. So often organisations are starting at that compliance stage. And I'll be honest, I think that's okay because they need to start somewhere. But what we do is we educate them and talk about better ways of doing accessibility. So that includes building accessibility into the entire process when you're developing new products but also working with organisations at a strategic level. So most of the organisations we work with are um, the larger corporates. And so uh, there needs to be a a strategy and action plan around making accessibility business as usual. So everyone just does it. That can be from a small thing as sending an email and, you know, making sure that the email is accessible. And if you've popped an image in there that it has alt text through to that you know more complex online experience Mm -hmm. and even spilling into that crossover between digital and physical as well so your likes of your kiosks or your atms or your fpos machines Um, we essentially partner with organizations along that whole journey that they're taking to uh, make their um, products uh, more accessible Wonderful. Well, Andrew, just in about 30 seconds, how can we find out more about your your company and the work that you do? Okay, so uh, online, obviously, at um, https colon slash slash utopia dot digital. Um, unfortunately, dot digital isn't recognised by everybody because when I try and go and register uh, Andrew at Intopia dot digital, uh, I have to uh, I get rejected as an invalid email. But uh, yes, just Intopia dot digital is their uh, URL. All right, guys. It's uh, been a blast chatting with both of you. I'm glad to see that you are not at all jet lagged and that you're <laughs> having fun at the conference. Uh, Sarah, just very quickly, what's on the docket for you for the rest of the day? Are you going to check out some talks? Absolutely, yeah. We're definitely going to check out some talks. I must admit the presentations, every single one of them has been amazing in its own way. So I'm really looking forward to the, the tail end of the conference. Andrew, are you just going to do what she does? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and meet some more people uh, you know, over afternoon tea and uh, after the conference. 
Uh, you had me at afternoon tea, a man after my own heart. Thank you very much, both of you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. There are good two presenters from this morning. Uh, Sarah and Andrew joined us all the way from Australia, and their talk about adding accessibility walkthroughs as a toolkit. I can actually, I actually know what that means now. So this has been uh, fun and informative, guys. Don't go away. You're listening to an AMI audio live broadcast. We're coming to you from the A11Y conference in downtown Toronto, and we'll be back after a quick. Breather. Hey, hello, hello, welcome back. You're listening to a live broadcast straight out of the A11YTO conference taking place in downtown Toronto. You're with me, Joey Thagupta. Time is flying by as we're having so much fun getting caught up with some of the attendees and some of the presenters this morning. Lots of great guests, lots of great perspectives, and a lot of great conversations happening on the program, but also just around me in the space. People are mingling, they're getting to know each other, they're exchanging emails and phone numbers and Twitter handles. It is so much fun to be smack dab in the middle of all of this. So... I want to say that uh, maybe you should rein in my enthusiasm a little bit and bring in our next guest. Our next guest is Liz Davis, who is a user experience designer and disability advocate in Chicago. Mm-hmm. She is in the process of earning a in an, an MS in human computer interaction from DePaul University. Now, this morning, Liz gave a talk called Beyond Accessibility, Learning from the Disabled Community. Liz, I am really pleased to have you on Thank the program. Thank you. So I have to to be honest with you, thanks a lot for doing this because everyone's been saying Liz has been zooming around, a tour de force. <laughs> I go a little fast in the chair. That's all good. It. No, it's all good. Um, you you have to excuse me. I I I I want to understand what user experience means because I feel like user mm-hmm. experience might be uh, simply referring to the user interface to make sure that a web application or a document or a web page that those things are accessible. Is that the extent of it when we talk about user experience and design? I suppose that depends on where you work. Um, <laughs> overall, uh, no, it would not just include uh, the web interface or or whatever digital interface you're interacting with, and it would include the entire user experience or the entire experience of using a product. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the good example is the accessible controller from Microsoft. It's a digital uh, assistive technology, right? But the experience is all the way down to the package design. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as a user experience designer, uh, we try to include from, from beginning to end uh, how design affects an experience and especially an accessible experience. Day to day, sometimes you get stuck kind of siloed in digital interfaces, and you try to get out of that by doing a lot of uh, side work, but uh, <laughs> it depends on where your your job. But the the main theory and hope of being a user experience designer is you consider you know digital analog everything right from the ground up from yep. the ground up, and that's yep. something that I think a lot of people may not realize that in taking a more a uh, holistic look at user experience, mm-hmm. you have so many opportunities, Liz, to involve people with disabilities. So they're not just coming in at the last stages as beta testers, but there's really a lot of scope to bring people in from the get-go and from the ground up. Isn't that right? Oh, that's 100% correct. Uh, you know, uh, activism starts just by being present in the environment when you're disabled. You know, a lot of times people don't ex- don't expect uh, someone in a wheelchair to come to their events or to work at their company. And as soon as you show up, you're already changing things just by being present. Mm-hmm. And that is something that uh, 
when you involve people with disabilities in your designs and your products, it's something that becomes very apparent just by having them in the room. Right. Well, tell me a little bit more about the work you do in Chicago. Sure. Uh, so I'm between jobs right now, but uh, and I'm starting a new job November fourth. Mm, congratulations. I'm Thank you. <laughs> uh, so uh, I've been a consultant and working in uh, more like e-commerce spaces and B2B business spaces, um, and accessibility is just kind of like something that's baked into it. I'm not necessarily a specialist, and I don't evaluate accessibility for companies, but I'm a designer that is an accessible designer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm there pushing for design systems that are accessible from the ground up. We need to involve users in our testing, no matter if it's some back-end technology. They're like, oh, it's not consumer, so we don't need to test for accessibility. I'm like, well, you probably have employees who are, you know, have disabilities that need to be tested with. Mm -hmm. And uh, aside from my day-to-day job work, I like to speak at camps and other design areas and teach other designers how to be accessible. And just kind of, you know, it's funny. I feel like my main job in Chicago is networking and connecting people. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll meet someone who is in the corporate world and they really want someone with a disability to be on their team or be on their product or help them out. And I'm like, you know, I know just the person for you. And building connections is is my specialty, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is what I enjoy doing most. Right. So so that's great to hear because uh, a conference like A11YTO is going to help you build those connections. And it's brought people together all, uh, not just from, from various parts of Canada, but also uh, we just had guests from Australia and all over mm-hmm. the place. So what's it been like for you to be a part of an event like this? Oh, it's, it's awesome. Uh, I know a lot of people here from the Slack channels and just like Twitter and the internet. And so this is the first time I'm meeting a lot of them in person. And it's fun to just like actually sit down and talk and have conversations and, and, and see everyone's just life experience and, and talk about it and make new friends, of course. I, I know a lot of people here, but also having people come up to me, that's why I'm zooming around because people are like <laughs> trying to go here and they're like, what is, you know, and it's very noticeable when you have a wheelchair and you're, you know, they're like, oh, that's Liz, right? That's that's great. Now, yeah. I really want to try and just unpack this a little bit more sure. though with you because when we talk about user experience, what are some of the ways in which someone with a disability can get involved? It's one thing to say that we want them at the mm-hmm. table, but how do you actually facilitate that? That's a good question. Um, if you're not a designer already who is disabled, you can, um, oh gosh, <laughs> you can attend meetups in mm-hmm. your city that have design meetup uh, that have design. You can get active on Twitter, uh, you know, reach out to their customer service. Honestly, you, you shouldn't be the ones that should have to start the conversation if you're not the designer. Mm-hmm. You should, they should be reaching out to you. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, to get involved in the back end, especially when you're not involved in design decisions. And so that's why I think it's up to the company or the person making the product to reach out and extend that arm for collaboration. Right. Often mm-hmm. the first time that a person with a disability who may not be a developer will encounter a company is if the product or the website is somehow inaccessible. Yeah. And they'll say, hey, you know, I've been trying to uh, book a flight or I've been trying to order a pizza <laughs> or we've been trying to do something else online and it, it isn't working. Can you mm-hmm. fix the problem? Do you feel that, you know, when there is a breakdown, it's less to do with something being inaccessible and more to do with a failure to communicate effectively between different parties, that it's not really, uh, that it's more about spreading awareness and less about malcontent or maliciousness? Oh, 100%. I don't think anyone, uh, that's the interesting thing about disability is no one intentionally leaves you out. Mm-hmm. It's a, like I just said in my 
said in my talk, it's it's just inherent biases that we have in our society about the disabled. And, you know, I grew up with them and I had to learn to, to take my biases aside for people with different types of disabilities than me. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, okay, well, I, I'm not blind, so how is a blind person's experience, experience different? And there's so much I didn't know. And I didn't know until I started asking and I started involving people and then getting to know people, right? Mm-hmm. And so these companies who don't have an accessible experience and they're kind of like shocked it's because they haven't been doing the proper due diligence and they haven't been communicating or they just you know they've never interacted with someone with disability before right but let me ask you this yes isn't it a little bit uh, isn't it a bit simple to say that accessibility is just for people with disabilities after all you know i think about my parents uh, mm-hmm. both of them are now a little bit older than they were before. <laughs> I just realized I probably shouldn't age them on the program. Uh, and, and what's happened with both of them is they've had cataract surgeries. I don't mm-hmm. think they'd mind me sharing that. So a lot of the things that they could see, uh, they're not able to see as well, even after the surgery. Mm-hmm. And so there's a real need to start to think about our aging population. And is that a conversation where accessibility on the web becomes less about making sure we check off a couple of those boxes, as I said previously, and more about making sure we have an experience that is as well-rounded and as welcoming of as many people as possible because like it or not everyone's going to need those accessibility features at some mm-hmm. point in their lives yeah and that's one what i love about being in user experience is it's not the you know there's a lot of technical talks here and i'm not the technical person i can't tell you how to make a button accessible i can find someone who could but i can't what i can tell you is that usability improves when we talk about accessibility Usability for everyone improves when we bring someone in with a screen reader to look at the hierarchy and to understand what's wrong with this website. So the the principle that inclusive design is better for usability is 100% true because <laughs> we're we're hitting all the marks, you know, you're, you're you talk about your parents who need like larger font sizes or they need special mm-hmm. uh, considerations, that's exactly for someone who's low vision. Exactly. Uh, or you know, no one likes <laughs> annoying ads that pop up and 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 flash at you right no one loves that not me no no one likes auto auto play videos like all these things are usability principles they they happen to be really really pain points when they consider accessibility exactly it's like taking that concept of the curb the curb cut effect exactly curb cut and if you have a a curb cut ooh, tripping over my tongue (laughs) if you have a curb cut on a sidewalk and you know you you implement that it's not just helpful for people in wheelchairs it's actually helpful for a whole bunch of other people is that the principle that we're transplanting here yes that is that is definitely a principle i live by i mean think of how prevalent captions are in in society now just because you know, they, they're an accessibility trait, right? But people use them on the train. You use them at work when you don't really want to turn on a video, but you just want to read it. It's Everything is so – it's it's just usability. And until we get to the point where accessibility and usability just become one thing, uh, we have to kind of, like, push it in there and say, hey – these are usability principles you're forgetting out, and they're very, very important to this accessible community. Absolutely. Well, look, you've got to humor me with one last question. <laughs> sure. My parents, now that the kids are out of the house, have been uh-huh. doing a whole bunch of traveling, and they've gone to Chicago, and they yes. said that you have got to try the deep dish pizza. <laughs> Is that oh. a thing? <laughs> so here's, the, here's the, the secret about the deep dish pizza. Ready? Yes. So if you go to Chicago and you're a tourist, you're going to probably be marketed for Giordano's. Mm-hmm. Giordano's, whatever. That's that's the tourist pizza. Okay. If you want real Chicago pizza, you need to go to Lou's. Luminati. Lou, Lou Malnati's. If I say it too much, it sounds like Illuminati. It's, <laughs> it's Lou Malnati's. And that is the Chicago pizza, and that is what we eat. We don't eat Giordano's or Gino's East. 
We eat Lou Malnati's. So come to Chicago. That's what you get. They're everywhere. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you very much for such a deep dive and for for all of your thoughts and for clearing up the mystery about the deep dish pizza. It's been really great talking to you. Thank (laughs) Thank you, you, Liz. (laughs) All right. That was uh, our conversation with Liz Davis. I'm going to let Liz get back to the conference and hang out with everybody who wants to meet hands and shake hands and uh, hang out with Liz. But we're going to take a quick breather on this program. But when we return, we will have more coming your way from the A11YTO conference in downtown Toronto. Don't go away. You're listening to an AMI-audio live broadcast, and we'll be back in a mere moment. back to the A11YTO conference coming to you from downtown Toronto. You're listening to an AMI-audio live production with me, Joitha Gupta. We've had a chance today to speak to a number of the presenters at the conference and get their take on why accessibility and inclusive design on the web is important to each and every one of them. But as I said, I love conferences. And so I had a chance to take a quick spin around the room and do a couple of things. You'll be hearing in just a few moments from Chansey Fleet, who is a Brooklyn-based web accessibility advocate and has a prominent role with uh, the New York Public Library System. And we'll be throwing to her talk in just a few moments. But first, I actually had a chance to sit down with Chansey and have a bit of a chat with her about why she's so passionate. So why don't we go ahead and roll that clip? Our next guest is Chansey Fleet. Chansey is a Brooklyn-based accessibility advocate working as the assistive technology coordinator for the New York Public Library. She is also the president of the Assistive Technology Trainers Division for the National Federation of the Blind. Chansey will be hosting a talk that we'll be tuning into very shortly today, and that talk is called Dimensions, Community Tools for Non-Visual Access to Spatial Information. This is going to be really interesting, and I'm really happy to have Chansey a chance to sit down with you today and tee up your talk. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So this, you, you're doing some really incredible work, but break it down for us. What do you mean by access or to, to, to non-visual information about spatial information? Give, give us the lowdown on that. Yeah, so I've been running a, a tech coaching program at the library for several years. And in the course of doing that work, somebody came to me and said that they wanted a map of New York City because they had just moved there. And it was somebody who was really well connected in the blind community. And I thought about it. And I thought, if this person who has a staff, a corner office, doesn't know where to get a basic map, then we've identified a trouble spot. And I started to reflect on my own access to tactile graphics raised line drawings, verbal description over the years. And I realized I didn't get many tactile, touchable images growing up. Usually when I did, they were handed me by a sighted person. Usually they were associated with homework and testing. So I realized we're kind of living in image poverty. We've just about come to a place where we think we deserve, as blind people, the basic right to access text. But I don't know that we reflexively think that way about images and graphics. 
I wanted to provide at the library a place where people, blind and sighted, can come and create access to the things that are important to them. So what we have at the library started with a tactile graphics embosser. So that punches about 100 dots per inch into paper and creates uh, sort of what look like visually pixelated graphics. And it's great for uh, images, infographics, maps, all kinds of things. We also have a swell touch machine, and that uses a capsule paper that when heated, the inked carboned parts of the paper will swell up, and that creates a really bold visual and tactile line. And we have a few 3D printers so that we can create 3D models. I don't know if you've ever heard the fable of the blind man and the elephant. It used to really irritate me when I was a kid. You know, one one person's touching the elephant's tongue. Uh, trunk, a bunch of blind guys, one one person's touching the elephant's side, and no one knows what it is. And I used to think that that was just a terrible story, but mm-hmm. now I think it's a story about how if you have an appropriately scaled-down model that you can hold in your hands, you know so much more. Because if we had a 3D-printed, handheld elephant, we'd know what it was right away. Exactly. And I loved your use of the word or the phrase image poverty because I think about uh, the experience of many blind youth, especially in the educational settings, geography, biology, any of the sciences, if you don't have access to a a representation of pictures and graphs and maps, you can be left behind if you're blind or partially sighted. Is that not true? That's exactly right. And it's true across the STEAM fields. And it's also just one of the most powerful things for me in this program, running it and simultaneously learning and staying one step ahead of of patrons who are learning, is realizing that joy that there is in creative self-expression, whether I'm drawing by hand with tactile hand tools that we have or hand coding SVG or 3D models. Yes, it's important vocationally. It's important for people that need to understand maps, floor plans, intersections, scientific content, whatever. But it's also a way to connect to a part of myself that I had long ignored. Mm-hmm. And of course, we don't want to keep you from getting to your talk. I know it's just a few minutes away and we would hate to keep you, but I just wanted to ask you, should have asked you right off the top, but are you having fun at the conference? Have you met a lot of cool people? This conference has been so incredible. We just heard from uh, a, a gamer with disabilities uh, named Cherry who gave a phenomenal speech about our intersectionalities and allyship. And, and that particular talk blew my mind, but we've uh, we, we've had a wonderful lineup this week and it's just an honor to be part of this community do you think it's uh, long overdue that we bring everybody together who's interested in talking about web design accessibility and digital equality and get all of those people together in the same space absolutely please come check us out at talkingbooks.nypl.org well it's been great talking to you i know you've really teased your talk and we'll be getting to it in just a few moments thanks so much and congratulations on all the great work that you do thank you Well, folks, that was quite something. Uh, I know I won't keep you from Cherry's talk much longer, but I did have a chance to speak to one of the conference attendees. It's always nice to hear why people take time out of their busy lives to attend a two-day event. So why don't we go ahead and have a listen. So right now we're in the main stage area at the A11YTO conference and it's in the middle of a break. You can probably hear the people milling around, lots of people getting caught up, having conversations. And we thought this might be a good opportunity to give you a sense of the goings on on the floor and had a chance to speak to one of the conference attendees who was kind enough to take a few minutes out of his busy schedule to talk to us. Omar, thanks so much for speaking to AMI Audio. How are you? 
I'm very good, thank you. So what brings you to the conference, business or pleasure? Uh, a, a little bit of both, actually, because, uh, what's it called? I was invited here by a, another colleague. My manager approved, and I'm here. But, you know, I, like the opportunity to learn new things and see and, you know, visit people, see, meet new people, you know, that, I like that a lot, actually. And what's your interest in inclusive design and digital accessibility? Why is it something that you're passionate about? Uh, first of all, it's kind of because of my job, because I'm a developer, and also because this is my lived experience. Uh, so I have a disability, uh, a visual impairment. So I live uh, accessibility every day. You and me both. I mean, as someone who's visually impaired, one of the things that I found is that we encounter the web and barriers on the web to accessibility all the time. So you mentioned previously that you're here partly for business and partly for pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit um, about what you do in terms of your workday and how your interest in development comes into that work? So I'm primarily a back-end developer. So that basically means I... Uh, build the business logic of the application or parts of the business logic of the application because our application is pretty big. Uh, so it's less uh, front-facing. It's not the UI outright, but I have to use the application to see uh, what it's get, what values from the that I provide the UI is pulling. So, uh, obviously, it needs to be accessible for me to use it, too. Hey, you read my mind, because I really wanted to ask you about some of your lived experience with accessibility. What are some of the things that have worked for you on the Internet, and what are some of the barriers that you find yourself encountering on a regular basis? Uh, some of the things that work for me... Uh, honestly, uh, probably the web is one of my favorite, what's it called, media content in general because it allows you so much freedom to, what's it called, structure the page uh, and, and so many ways to navigate it with my screen reader. Of course, there are challenges. I mean, it gives you a lot of freedom, but only if you use it as it was supposed to be intended. Uh, and you have good design uh, a web page is as good as, you know, the designers make it to be accessible. Uh, if you don't know how to make it accessible, then chances are uh, the things you make with it might not be. Do you feel that this conference has been an, an opportunity for you to meet people from all over the place who are trying to find solutions to web accessibility? Uh, so far, it has been uh, from different approaches, from procurement to uh, making recommendations for how to integrate use, user views into your design. Well, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun with it. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. It was, really, it was great talking to you. Thanks for talking to you too. 
Well, folks, that was a conversation I had with a, an amazing sport, Omar, who was an attendee at the conference and was quite willing to talk to the girl with a recorder. So thank you very much, Omar. It was great to hear from you. And I think he pretty much nailed it when he said that websites and web pages are about as accessible as designers make them. I think that is the quote of the day. Uh, let's head over to the podium now. And through the miracle of technology, we'll be bringing you one of the lightning talks that's taking place today. Our friend uh, Clancy Fleet, uh, who is a, a, a Chansey Fleet, who is a Brooklyn-based accessibility advocate, is now getting set to give the talk that we talked about earlier. It's a talk that deals with the community tools for non-visual access to spatial information. Let's go ahead and have a listen. Uh, Chansey Fleet is here to talk about tactile images, all sorts of tactile information. I'm super excited about this because I'm trying to learn more about tactile myself. So thank you so much for being here, Chansey. Can't wait to hear your talk. Thanks. Podium. Awesome. Thank you. Lie down. Lie down. First three minutes of the talk is just getting her to behave. Um, so I don't have any slides for you today, and I'm going over some concepts, and you may feel like you wish you had a picture and the words are just a little abstract and you could totally connect if you just had an image of the thing I'm talking about. Be in that feeling because what I'm going to talk to you about today is how that's kind of the default state for blind people and how it's not because we can't and don't want to access images but we're sort of living in a state of image poverty and our library is working on creating a community of practice to push back on that a little bit. So I'm at the New York Public Library. We are two libraries in one. We are a fully open public branch that's open to any NYPL card holder. And we're also a, a regional library for the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. It's a really special place to me because it's a place where we can come together as community of disability and just community in general. A lot of the time when we do accessibility, particularly when we're learning accessibility as blind people. We go off to some facility and there's a special little room. But no, what we do at the New York Public Library is intertwined with the broader community and the public. So I'm a tech educator. I run uh, a tech coaching service that does about 170 hours a month of one-on-one -on -one technology coaching powered by native users, both staff and volunteers. We're free of charge, free of eligibility requirements, and free of paperwork. So I've been doing that on staff since 2014. And you know we help people with computers and iPhones and Android tablets and Kindle Fires, and you name it. And I love that. But something new started happening in 2017. And it all started when one of the most well-connected blind people I know called me up and said, where can I find a New York City map? Just a simple map that connects the five boroughs and the waterways. I'm moving to New York and I want to understand, you know, what New York is like. And I thought to myself, if this person who has a corner office and a dedicated staff and works for a blindness organization is not sure how to get a five borough map, we've identified an opportunity. And I started reflecting on my own relationship with graphics. In life, Graphics, tactile graphics, raised line drawings, whatever you want to call them, have been something that is handed to me, usually by a sighted person. 
Often after I'm handed my graphic of the month, the sighted people around me as I was growing up would express a keen and verbose interest in what I was perceiving and what I was understanding. In seventh grade, that didn't go over well with me. The majority of the images I touched in grade school were associated with homework or with testing. That didn't go over well with me. The vast majority of the time, I wasn't handed anything at all. I was told that I didn't need the graphics. The pictures were something extra. They were just eye candy. Nobody thought I might want candy, too. <laughs> when it came time to do a drawing activity, I was invited to just write a paragraph or read my book. So I grew up thinking I didn't care much about maps or pictures. I grew up thinking I was just a really verbal kid. But when I became a professional in this field and joined the accessibility community, I started to meet blind and sighted artists, scientists, and makers who make beautiful tactile maps, bas-relief images enriched with audio, sonified data representations, vivid verbal descriptions, all bringing complex images to non-visual legibility. And I began to realize that blind people like me can understand images, can have excellent spatial aptitude, can express ourselves in graphic media. Thanks to the disability rights movement and legislation, many of us have internalized a reflexive belief that we do have the right to access text in books, in coursework, on the web. But when it comes to images and graphics, our access is so uneven that we may never discover our aptitude or our desire. Sighted children learn spatial communication as they learn language. Images are everywhere. Tactile images aren't so easy to come by. If you can count on your two hands the number of maps, diagrams, and images you've encountered in a calendar year, you might think that you have trouble understanding graphics, but what you have is trouble stemming from the universal difficulty of making meaning from something unfamiliar. So in 2017, we launched the Dimensions Lab. Many people in our community haven't tried or can't afford tools for making tactile graphics and 3D models. So we started offering tools that are free for anyone to use. And that means blind people, but it also means allies of any stripe. It means uh, parents. It means uh, professionals in the field, people from cultural institutions. Most people aren't sure how to make a tactile graphic. The first tactile graphic that anyone makes is usually pretty terrible, pretty illegible. So we host workshops on good practices for tactile legibility and orientations to all of our hardware. We talk about things like the resolution that makes sense from a tactile perspective. When you're talking about tactile graphics, clutter is really the, the enemy. You want to space things out, and you may want to represent different, part, get different types of information in different layers, and you may want to make labels shorter because Braille is so much bigger than print, and you may want to create a separate legend or key where those labels are listed out. It's not hard stuff to learn, but you don't know what you don't know. So we have these workshops we call Tactile Tactics, where we teach people how to get started. And in those workshops, more important than the facts that you learn, you get to know people. 
people who are blind and sighted, and that's your learning community, your learning community of, of, of practice. Most people, blind and sighted, are carrying around a lot of low expectations and assumptions about the spatial skills of blind people. So we also offer low-pressure drop-in workshops where people can try tactile drawing, try image description, and try spatial skills that we learn hand over hand or that we learn using description. My favorite is uh, our origami series. We use verbal description to teach people origami models. And the people leading those workshops are blind. So let me get into the nuts and bolts a little bit. What's in the lab? And I want to say that most of what's in the lab is donated or comes from small grants. We started out with a small NYPL innovation grant for employees. We got a donation in kind for the embosser I'm about to talk about uh, from the New York State Commission for the Blind. And we have several other pieces of equipment on a friendly permanent loan. And a lot of the effort that's been donated to develop curricula, to help me and other blind staff learn and understand what we need to learn and understand, and to offer uh, community workshops. We're really, really lucky because we have a lot of community partners that have come in and given of their knowledge and become teachers in the space. So we didn't do any of this with a big budget. Our budget is very small in our branch. Um, we have an Index Everest and Tiger Columbia embosser. If you haven't seen an embosser for, before, it's a device that can emboss Braille, but it can also emboss dots that are more tightly spaced together, right up to 100 dots per inch, which is kind of the max resolution that you want for tactile. And uh, we can emboss on copy paper, Braille paper, a range of different materials. We have a swell form machine. If you haven't seen one of those swell forms machines before, it is sort of an oven for paper. So we have this capsule paper that you run through a regular printer first. And after you ink it, when you run it through the heating machine, the carbon in the ink causes any inked regions of the paper to rise. And that's really great for people that are blind and sighted or low vision working together because you get a really beautiful, bold tactile line and a really beautiful, bold visual line all on one graphic. So, some people don't want to create their own graphics. They want something that already exists, like a US map or the anatomy of a, a cell. So we can download tactile graphics from online catalogs. But we can also make our own. We use a software called Tactile View. And if you're sighted, you can draw with the mouse. You can draw with a Wacom tablet. You can, you can scan an image in. If you're blind, Tactile View software has a menu-driven system where you can use coordinates on the XY plane to specify and fill in lines, geometric shapes, and textures. And from simple geometric shapes and lines, as we know, we can build anything that we can imagine. Some of the most popular things are the most simple things. When I go to library patrons and say, you know, you can come and make any image that you want, any map that you want, sometimes the response I get is, why would I want to do that? What would I make? Because you don't demand what you haven't had. So some of our most popular things are just simple. A map of New York City, a set of raised cursive letters for people that want to improve their handwriting, and holiday cards, like little Valentine's cards with um, decorative hearts, things like that. Sometimes simple is the way to get someone to engage. And from there, they can start imagining what else they might want to do. In addition to working with tactile view, there are other ways that we can generate two-dimensional images. 
We can hand code SVG. We can use that menu-driven system that I mentioned. Or we can use a new tool created by our community partners at uh, Google Creative Labs called Sound Canvas, which lets you get real-time sonified pitch and pan feedback as you move the arrow keys around or the mouse around or a body part around to draw with sound. And that can then be output to tactile. We have some 3D printers. We have a Lulzbot TAS-6 and an a couple of Ultimakers on loan. And we use these to make accessible objects. Accessible objects like tactile dice, like braille blocks, like protractors that otherwise you'd have to buy in a store. And for models of things whose originals are too big, too small, too delicate, or too imaginary to touch. We can download existing STL files, or we can make our own. Everything in the lab, including the 3D printers, is operable by blind people. My favorite print so far is a series of cuneiform tablets from 2000 BC whose originals are closely guarded in our rare books division. Basically, they're ancient receipts for livestock and land. And I've been reading about cuneiform in textbooks since I was a little kid, but I never had a mental image. They were just a word. Now I've held one in my hand. They fit in the palm of my hand, and they're so deeply engraved that they feel legible. I wonder if a blind person could have been a scribe back then. That's a thought I never would have had without a 3D print. Blind people are prevented from the full exercise of our spatial ability by the lack of a full-page dynamic tactile display. I would love to use interactive on-screen drawing tools if the screen in question weren't completely flat. A couple promising prototypes are out there. There's the graffiti and the dot pad. And if anyone wants to send us a prototype, we would not be opposed. But for now... One of our best options is designing with code. We use OpenSCAD, which is open source parametric design software that lets blind people write with code. Again, geometric shapes, play with scale, play with movement, play with rotation to create what other, whatever we can imagine. And sometimes it's important to just think spatially without a computer in the way. I want people to discover the joy of doodling, drawing, thinking something through with a pen. That's a part of my mind that I'm happy to have unlocked. We use these little cheap rubber boards called sensational blackboards. You put paper on them and you draw with a ballpoint pen firmly and it raises a line. So we teach people to draw with those. And we also use three, do three doodler start 3D printing pens that use non-toxic compostable filament that has such a low melting point that you can touch while you, what you're drawing while you're drawing and it's not unpleasantly hot. We're welcome, we are welcoming accessibility professionals, educators, museum workers, blind students and makers and adventurers to come in, get to know the tools and grow a community of practice. We do not compete with professional quality graphics shops any more than the printers we offer sighted patrons downstairs compete with the carefully made picture books on our shelves. We are about the power of choice and experimentation, the joy of making things together, even making mistakes together, and the conviction that a full blind life is not lived in text-only mode. Thank you. All right, folks, you just heard a brief talk with Chansey Fleet, 
who is one of the presenters at the A11YTO conference taking place at the T the TELUS Digital Center uh, Tower in downtown Toronto. We'll have that uh, talk as well as the rest of the show available to you as a podcast. AMI audio live content is available to you in podcast form and any of your favorite podcast platforms. So if you missed any part of the program today and you'd like to go back and check it out, please feel free to download the podcast and to let people know about your um, about your preferences in terms of the content that we bring you today. Well, folks, this is pretty much the end of the road for us. I am, I'm afraid that as much fun as it has been, we need to hit Alt-F4 on this uh, particular broadcast, but it's been a lot of fun being your host today. We just wanted to mention that if you'd like to learn more about the A11Y conference and some of their year-round activities, because even though they put on this conference, uh, which has been a week-long event, they do, in fact, put on a lot of we have a lot of things. Um, they do have a lot of things planned over the course of the year. So please check out their website, a11yto.com. That's a11yto.com. And it's the number one there. I just wanted to mention that. A couple of thank yous going uh, your way. I want to remind you that Kelly & Company is just around the corner, but I want to thank uh, our producer today, uh, Andrika Delanerol is the producer. Sam Robinson is the technical producer Nasreel Abdul-Majid is our is our technician out in Toronto. Technical supervisor is Paula Deneen. Marketing and digital team makes it possible. We have Elena Falcone, Greg David, and Blake Vandegraaff. All thank you to all of you for your hard work in putting this together. And of course, we need to say thank you to Andy Frank, who is the manager of AMI-audio. But most of all, guys, thank you so much for listening. It's been a a lot of fun for me, and I hope it's been fun for you as well. We're going to head on over to Kelly and Company and in Toronto, and they will, as Ramya likes to say, ease open the gateway to the weekend. Thanks a lot, and take care. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. 
watch The Pulse on YouTube, or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.